This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast number 254, Beethoven. I'm Hal Hammonds, Citizen of Heaven, your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Thanks for listening, rating, and subscribing. Ludwig von Beethoven is one of two names that come up more than any other when the topic of history's greatest composer is discussed. Here Mozart gets his day next week, Lord willing. This week we'll discuss Beethoven's battle with deafness and how losing it helped him win the war, the heroic nature of his work and how it can help you be a hero today, one of the worst pieces of music Beethoven ever wrote and why I love it so much, and a game I shoehorned into this space because I needed another segment. We'll start with what I've been preaching. Schroeder from the Peanuts comic strip, the greatest Beethoven pianist of all time, taught me way back in the day that Beethoven was deaf when he composed his Ninth Symphony. He was upset about it enough to go to Lucy's psychiatry booth. Her response, try not to think about it. Five cents, please. Turns out it was a lot worse than Schroeder said. Beethoven was going deaf as early as 1800, more than 20 years before the Ninth Symphony. The vast majority of his work, including practically everything he's most known for, was written while he was partially or completely without hearing. The famous opening to his fifth symphony, the piece used for the opening of this podcast, was intended to represent what Beethoven considered a future spent in deafness to be. He called it fate knocking on the door. The obvious question would seem to be, how could a deaf man compose any music at all, let alone some of the greatest music in history? And the answer is as obvious as it is frustrating. He was just really, really good. Beethoven simply knew what music sounded like. He could hear it in his head, even if he couldn't hear it in his ear. He didn't need to experiment with combinations of tones. He knew exactly how every piece of music would sound simply by looking at the score. Or from the standpoint of the composer, he could design a piece of music in his head and then write down how it should be performed. Stories abound of how Beethoven would put his ear to the piano to detect the tones or conduct sound waves to his ear by way of a pencil. He literally pounded pianos to death trying to get enough sound out of them to detect. But in the end, he didn't need tricks, workarounds, or even hearing aids. If his ears were of no help, what was between them would do perfectly well. I think being a blind preacher would be a similar experience. I've known men who could, upon giving a random citation, quote not only the precise verse in question, but the ones before it and after it as well. I certainly have known of preachers whose vision was so bad that they didn't even bother bringing notes or a Bible into the pulpit. They would just flawlessly deliver a 45-minute sermon, complete with several dozen verses of Scripture properly quoted and cited. And it's no mystery how that happens. They simply spend hours and hours in the text, reading it, taking notes, deliberately committing it to memory. Not this preacher, just in case you were wondering. Just this Sunday, I had to shut down an entire sermon while the technical crew got my PowerPoint slides properly oriented. I do think, though, that the word of Christ can dwell in us richly in all wisdom, to borrow from Paul in Colossians 3.16. And I don't think for a moment Paul means memorizing entire books of the Bible, or even parts of it. Nor do I think it refers to spiritual gifts, which were bestowed on some Christians in Bible times to guide them and the brethren in the absence of the completed New Testament. No, I think it's a lot simpler than that. I think it's what James 1.21 means, giving the seed of the gospel a safe, healthy place to germinate and grow. It's the mustard seed of Matthew 13, 31 and 32, rooting itself and ultimately growing to position of functionality and even support of others in their own walk with Christ. 
Wouldn't it be great to have that process work in you and not go deaf and blind? You could keep on listening to the Word, reading the Word, growing in your faith and application with as many days as God chooses to give you. And then if your body fails you, the work you've already done would be enough to carry you through the rest of the way. Or you could just act deaf and blind right now for no good reason. But that doesn't seem like a very good plan, does it? This is what I've been reading. When I was growing up, being a hero sounded like a pretty good gig. You get the applause, you get the money, you get the girl. What more could you want? Well, my definition of hero has changed considerably over the last half century or so. I realize now that defeating the bad guy, saving the damsel in distress, leaping tall buildings in a single bound, most of that's hype. I've come to believe that true heroes are the ones who get the best out of themselves and inspire others to do the same. Courage, integrity, perseverance, creativity, dedication. Take these characteristics and others like them, put them to work in your life, wherever you are, and empower others to walk in your footsteps. That makes you a hero in my book. In Beethoven, the composer is hero, author Philippe Autexier finds in Beethoven all the trappings of heroism. There's a reason legendary rock and roller Billy Joel keeps a bust of Ludwig von Beethoven on his piano. There's a reason classical piano players today measure themselves by how well they can play Beethoven's Hammerklavier Sonata. Beethoven inspires people to rise to greater heights and overcome immense obstacles in so doing. And that goes for preachers and podcasters just as much as it does for piano players. Being a hero is not about having parades thrown in your honor, having buildings named after you. It's usually about sacrifice, and a lot of it. For Beethoven to compose the greatest music ever heard, he had to make a real commitment. A commitment of time, a commitment of effort, a commitment of money. Beethoven, who at a young age was likely the best piano player in the world, hardly ever gave performances, even though he would have been well paid for them. Part of that, especially in his later years, was because his deafness made it impossible to provide the nuance and expressiveness he once demonstrated. But even in his youth, he wanted to focus almost exclusively on composition. He had music in his head, and he was determined to put it on paper. Beethoven's personal relationships suffered greatly. His family relations were strained at best. His romantic relationships never led to marriage or children. His immortal beloved, a woman who remains unidentified, inspired some of Beethoven's greatest work because she remained unattainable. An intellect like Beethoven could have found some measure of satisfaction in any number of arenas. He chose to work in the one arena in which his greatest handicap would be his greatest frustration. But that's where his greatness lay, and so that's where he chose to build his life. You can do that too. And if you build a good enough life... You leave a legacy. Without delving into the musical weeds, which I'm not qualified to do anyway, Beethoven changed the way music was written, performed, and enjoyed. His third symphony, the Eroica, ushered in the Romantic era of music. Romantic has nothing to do with boy meets girl, by the way. Every composer who followed for the next two centuries was defined by how much his work sounded like Beethoven's work. Not just doing good work, but inspiring others to do good work as well. That's a hero. Jesus is my hero. So are those who imitate him. If you're one of those people, then you're my hero. Thank you. 
Thank you for modeling his attitude of service, for truly believing it's better to give than to receive, as Paul records in Acts 20, 35. Thank you for modeling his humility and gentleness of heart, as he requires in Matthew eleven twenty nine. Thank you for building faith, hope, and love in your own heart and showing me how to do the same. And to borrow from Galatians 6, 9, don't grow weary in well-doing. You're going to leave footprints in the sand, however and wherever you choose to walk. Make them heroic ones. Generations of potential followers will thank you for it. This is what I've been hearing. In 1813, Beethoven accepted a commission to write an original piece celebrating the Battle of Vittoria, in which Napoleon Bonaparte's brother Joseph Bonaparte was defeated by a coalition led by England's Arthur Wellesley, later known as the Duke of Wellington. piece, Opus 91, came to be known as Wellington's Victory, or the Battle Symphony. It's widely considered by critics to be trivial at best, awful at worst. Beethoven didn't care, especially since audiences absolutely loved it, which could not be said of a lot of Beethoven's other better works. He famously said to one of his critics, I excrete better than anything you could ever think of. Depending on which experts you ask, Beethoven wrote between two and four of the ten greatest symphonies in the history of music. And the so-called Battle Symphony, to put it mildly, isn't one of them. It doesn't even get to be counted among his nine real symphonies. It's just a bit of fluff he wrote between numbers seven and eight. Seldom performed now. But Wellington's victory holds a special place in my heart. When my mother bought a box set of Beethoven's greatest works, my brother Paul and I flipped out over Wellington's victory. Maybe because it's less than 15 minutes long. Maybe because of all the gunfire and how we could play war when it was on the stereo. Maybe it was because of the recognizable tunes, including The Bear Went Over the Mountain, speaking of bits of fluff. In any case, you won't catch me throwing shade at Wellington's victory. Is greatness overrated? I wouldn't say that. I would say, though, that the important sermons I preach tend very strongly to go over not nearly as well as the fun sermons. That used to bother me, not so much anymore. I still take my work seriously, mind you, but I don't take myself quite so seriously. I'm not trying to be the most popular preacher in town, mind you, but if I'm preaching the word and people are listening, I'll gladly take the W. And maybe a sermon that's a bit more entertaining than the average could be just the thing to inspire a listener to pay more attention to the Bible in general. For instance, I have a sermon in which I show the way the story of Noah is preserved in Chinese ideographs. Did you know, for instance, that the character for Ark is made by combining the characters for human, boat, and the number eight? How did that happen? The most obvious way would seem to be that the person who first wrote the Chinese alphabet had heard a story about eight people in a boat. Maybe from his great-great-granddaddy who was actually on the Ark. Is it the most cross-centered sermon I have? No. Do the teenagers pay attention? Yes. And maybe that's not such an ignoble goal. There is such a thing as pandering, which is defined as appealing to others' weaknesses or unreasonable desires. I'm opposed to that. 
Paul warns about listeners with itching ears in 2 Timothy 4.3. Some Christians will be frustrated that the true gospel doesn't get a favorable reception and choose to preach something else instead, something contrary. Paul condemns that sort of preaching in Galatians 6, 8, and 9, and I'm condemning it here. I'm officially anti-pandering. But there's a world of difference between giving the people what they want and choosing a piece of the gospel message that's inviting and accessible in the moment. The time comes for the hard truth, absolutely. But the time also comes for a good reminder of how much God loves you, or how wonderful heaven will be, or how grateful you are that your sins have been forgiven. Yes, those lessons tend to go over better, but that doesn't mean they don't have their place. Aspiring to greatness is fine in its place, but it's fine to settle for being interesting from time to time. If people are getting the message you're sending, and that message glorifies God, consider that a victory and celebrate. This is what I've been playing. Once upon a time, I thought I had to own and play every game I featured in this space. Then one day I realized, hey, this is my podcast. I can do what I want. If I choose to comment on games I've never played, I bet people will let me get away with that. So I floated a couple of tribal balloons and as expected, no reaction at all. If that means I don't have to spend $40 to get a Beethoven-themed game just so I can fill a five-minute hole in a Beethoven-themed episode, that's all to the good. Hal Hammonds, famous tightwad, saying no even to board game purchases from time to time. Anyway, Symphony No. 9 is a game that, for obvious reasons, grabbed my attention immediately. It's a game in which players take the role of patrons of the arts in the 18th century. Six famous composers, including Beethoven, are composing different works, and you're investing in them. Some of the composers will turn out to be popular, some will die early, some won't be very good, etc. You want to be the biggest contributor to the most successful composers. Then at the end of every round, there's a concert for the king. At the concert, you know what, I'm, I'm just going to cut it off right there. You don't care. And since I didn't buy the game, obviously I don't care. I'm mentioning the game here because of the name. So let's talk about the name. The game is called Symphony No. 9, presumably in honor of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. That's the one with the Ode to Joy in the final movement. You know. Anyway, the Ninth Symphony has absolutely nothing to do with this game, as far as I can tell. In fact, Franz Schubert is one of the other composers in the game, and he wrote nine symphonies as well. And his ninth is called The Great. Joseph Haydn, another of the composers in the game, wrote 106 symphonies. Presumably one of them was his ninth. When I heard of the game, I assumed Symphony No. 9 referred to Beethoven. And frankly, all things considered, I still assume that. Beethoven's is by far the most famous ninth symphony in the musical history. Beethoven's in the game. You do the math. All that said, I think that I speak for Beethoven fans everywhere when I say I feel a bit like a bait-and-switch victim here. The implication seems to be if you like Beethoven, and especially if you like Beethoven's Ninth, you'll be inclined to like the game. And it worked with me, at least to an extent. I was very much inclined to investigate the game when I saw the title, and if it had been at all interesting, I suspect I would have bought it. But I'm not a complete sucker in such matters. In the end, I don't want to buy a game to show my support of Beethoven, or Columbus, or Julius Caesar, 
or any other notable of history that might find his name, face, or accomplishments on the box cover of a board game. I play to have fun, and to podcast, of course. And if I don't think the game would be fun, and if I can get the podcast segment without buying it, I'll pass. You've heard of guilt by association. There's also righteousness by association. You can fool yourself into thinking that something is appealing simply because it has obvious connections to something worthy. Maybe it's a person whose parents are great Christians. Maybe it's a book written by an author you like. Maybe it's a podcast taken from the words of your favorite Bible verse. But in the end, people and practices stand or fall based on their own merits, not the merits of their neighbors. Jesus warns of false prophets wearing sheep's clothing in Matthew 7.15. The beast out of the earth depicted in Revelation 13 clearly is intended to bear a superficial resemblance to Jesus. The church in Sardis is described in Revelation 3 as having a name that they are living while actually being dead. Be wary of superficialities, both in your own work and in the work of others. Don't be content with simply keeping company with servants of God. Be a servant of God yourself. Don't settle for a church with a scriptural name and a good-looking sign. Find true children of God, offering pure and undefiled worship. And make beautiful music to the Lord and to your brethren there. No composer became great simply by calling himself Ludwig. And no so-called Christian was ever acceptable before God simply because he wore the name of Jesus. Do as 1 Peter 4.16 says, Wear that name, rejoice in that name, and live a life that gives that name honor. Thank you for listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Please rate, review, and share so others can access this content. I encourage you also to join the Heaven Citizens Facebook group. There you will find links to related materials, conversation starters, poll questions, and the occasional special announcement. Also, check out the Hal Hammonds channel on YouTube for even more content. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight to fight faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, Citizen of Heaven, signing off.